Well, we are in a, um, we're in a series in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we got into it a couple weeks or months or so ago, and just to remind you, it's D-Day. The heavens have ripped open, and God has invaded the world by Christ and the Spirit. He has invaded and landed on the shores of a lost and ruined humanity. And when he got on the shores of that lost and human, ruined humanity, he found that the world that he came to is not only, well, it is contested. Because enemies have come. When the Lord returned to his home, he found that there were enemies that came, the squatters that came to the house. And so he's got to clear out the squatters. There's a conflict that arises, and we've seen that conflict developing for uh, two chapters since chapter 2. And the conflict that's developing is this particularly between the religious leaders and Jesus, and it's come to its breaking point. Jesus, we saw last or two weeks ago, that was the um, second to last time he will return to the synagogue. And the religious leaders, for their part, it says that they're seeking to destroy him. But we know that behind the conflict with the religious leader stands a greater conflict. A conflict with the demonic powers. See, when Jesus invaded the world, the people who were occupying it, well, it was the demonic powers who enslave and corrupt and seek to destroy the children of God. And so, one of the first things that happens is that Jesus goes out into the wilderness and does battle with Satan. And then he goes through and he starts casting out demons left and right. And the first one asks, uh, have you come to destroy us, son of God? And the answer is yes. Yes, I have. And then almost every week since, we have seen a battle with the demonic powers, either overtly or... um, indirectly, either, uh, either something that is um, by illusion or there clearly. And in the midst of this conflict, though, Jesus goes about establishing a community. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So as we do, let me pray for us. Lord of hosts, would you come through the proclamation of your word and all your power, conquer our idols, crush our fears, and transform us with your love. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen. Well, I don't know if you listen, but it really is a shocking text. The text that was read earlier and especially the bits in between it. Because in this passage, in the midst of it, Jesus talks about an unforgivable sin. An unforgivable sin. I get a lot of questions about the unforgivable sin. I was actually called a couple weeks ago and someone asked me about the unforgivable sin. And most of the time when people ask me, they associate it with suicide. Is suicide the unforgivable sin? Look at verse 28 and 29. Jesus says to 
those who are standing there. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, but whatever, but whatever blasphemies they utter, uh, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Those who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit do not have forgiveness. And again, it's shocking that Jesus would talk about this unforgivable sin. We say, well, can't he forgive any, any sin and every sin? And what is the unforgivable sin? But, but I want you to note that the context has nothing to do with suicide. Suicide is nowhere in this context, nowhere near this context. Uh, so I don't know where people get that. I really don't. I have no idea. But what is in the context is that Jesus is being accused of being in the possession of Satan. If you look at verse 30, he goes on and he says, he has, they say after uh, Jesus says this, he has an unclean spirit. And before this, the religious leaders in verse 22, they say Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. It's really an absurd claim. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And Jesus, he notes the absurdity of it in verses 23 through 27. He gives some stories that basically says, wait, why would Satan cast out Satan? That would be like, that would be like injuring your own players. That would be like scoring a goal against yourself. That doesn't make any sense. Why would Satan and the power of Satan cast out those who were in league with Satan? This doesn't make any sense. No, what has happened is the world is ruled by one who is strong. But a stronger one has come. And he has bound Satan. And he is casting out the demons. And it's in this context that Jesus says, it's about an unforgivable sin. And the sin that is unforgivable is to call the work of Jesus, the work of Satan. That's the sin that's unforgivable. And it's unforgivable not because it is so heinous that God's grace can't forgive it. It's unforgivable because it prevents one from accepting the grace which can forgive even the most heinous of sins. You see, because as long you say that what Jesus is offering and what Jesus is doing is of Satan, then you will never accept it. And if you won't accept it, well, then you won't accept it. And it really is a shocking passage. But that's not really what's shocking about it, the unforgivable sin. That's what draws our attention, and so we miss what's really shocking about this passage. Jesus is, verses 31 through 33 tells the story where Jesus' mothers and brothers come to him when he is teaching in a crowd. And we know from earlier on, verse 21, that they are staging an intervention because they believe that Jesus is out of his mind. He's not eating, he's ministering day and night, and they think that he's gone crazy. And so they're coming to stage an intervention, but there's a large crowd there, and they can't get in. And in the midst of the large crowd, someone passes him a message. Your mother and your brothers, they've arrived. And then Jesus says this, verses 31 through 35, or verses 33 through 35, who are my mother and my brothers? 
And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now that's shocking. Jesus is saying that the community of my disciples is the most influential and important community that exists. Tom Wright says, unless you read verses 34 and 35 as deeply shocking, you haven't got the message. Because Jesus, while his mother and brother and sister are outside, looks at these disciples around him and says, here is my family. Here's my family. Uh, maybe you have, um, maybe you have seen those uh, Sprint commercials from like two, three years ago when they ask like, Who, who's in your top five? And then they had that one deal that was like the, the friends and family deal and they called it the family, your family, you know? And they, wanted, they talked about your family. Who's your family? Like who is your top five people or whatever who you have on your, on your list? Well, here Jesus is talking about these, this is my family. This is who my family is. And they are more important than my family of origin. Uh, it, Monica McGoldrick, uh, amongst other psychologists and sociologists, have noticed how influential our families of origin are on us. I mean, just think about it. Biologically, your nose and chin shape is passed down to you from your parents. But it's more than just that. Your family of origin shapes um, your emotional reactions, your sociability, how you interact in groups, whether or not you are assert yourself or don't assert yourself. All these types of things are influenced by our families of origin. McGoldrick writes, Whatever has happened in your family shapes you. Events that occurred long before your birth, never mentioned in your family during your lifetime, may influence you in a powerful though hidden ways. Every fact of your family's biography is part of the many-layered pattern that becomes your identity. Do you hear what McGoldrick is saying? She's saying there's nothing more influential to our identities than our family of origin. And yet here, Jesus says, water's thicker than blood. We have a phrase, right? Blood is thicker than water. And what we mean by that is that family is more important than friends or connections or colleagues or anything else. But Jesus says, no, the waters of baptism unite you in a community that is far more significant than your blood ties, than your family of origin. Now, this doesn't strike us as shocking, many of us, because we can't quite let ourselves believe what Jesus is really saying here. What we think he's saying, what we hear him saying is this. You know how close you are to your family? You know how much you love your family? You should love my disciples like that. And we think, yeah, it's an analogy. It's like the church approaches 
the importance of the family. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Because mind you, the context is that his mother and brothers are outside. And they're banging down the door trying to get into him. And he ignores them. And says, who is my family? This is my family. In other words, what Jesus is saying is the community of my disciples, they transcend family. They are greater than family. They are more influential than family. And not just some of my disciples. Some of, some of us hear that and we think, well, yeah, I get that. I mean, I got, I got Christian friends who I would go to and we connect and I would go to for advice and they shape how I think about the world and way more than my family does. No, Jesus doesn't say some Christians, some followers. He says all. Look, verse 35, whoever does the will of God, all. And not just all within a particular local church body, and that's hard enough to believe, right? We all have our groups within a local church body. That's natural. But he says not, not just that. No, no, all. Like, like all Christians everywhere, you have to say, I belong to them and they belong to me. They are my people. Have you ever been somewhere or met someone and you started talking and you started realizing that like you liked all the same things, you could finish one another's sentences, you enjoyed the same things, and you, you started having, you realized maybe you had similar stories and you thought, that's my people. I belong to them and they belong to me. Jesus says, the people that you say, that's my people, they belong to me and I belong to them. It's all my followers. And here's what that means. It means that it means that Eastern Orthodox Christians are yours and you are theirs. It means that Roman Catholic Christians are yours and you are theirs. It means that Lutheran Christians are yours and you are theirs. It means that Anglican Christians are yours and you are theirs. And, and, and yes, it even means that Pentecostal Christians and Baptist Christians and the Evangelicals, that one's hard for me, are yours and you are theirs. We are one another's. Those are my people. Those are my people, Jesus is saying. And this has radical implications. It has implications for those of us who grow up in Christian families and have Christian families. Because what it means is this, that before, before Pam is my wife, she's my sister. That before Neve is my daughter, she's my sister. And that what's more important than her being my daughter is her being my sister in the body of Christ. And that what's more important in the way that we raise Neve is that she, that we care more about her finding her identity not in our family's particular taste or ways of doing things or beliefs. Uh, it's, it's not as important that Neve grows up learning to love single-origin coffee from West Africa or that she believes in single-payer health care. But what is important is that she finds her identity in the body of Christ, that she finds her identity in the creeds of the church, that she says, 
those are my people. And I am their people. I'm theirs and I am theirs and they are mine. You say, well, wait, 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 wait a second, Kyle. What about the importance of the family in the Bible? And don't we have like this theology that we baptize kids because we believe that the family is important? And when we come to communion, don't you say things to us like the body of Christ for you and your family and the blood of Christ for you and your family? I mean, what about that, Kyle? That's a great question. What about that? What do we do with our covenant theology and our theology of families and how it relates to this? Well, the way that we view that is simply like this. The family is a booster on a rocket ship. It launches the rocket ship into space. But once it's done its job, it falls away. Because its main purpose is to get the rocket ship into space not to stay attached to the rocket ship. You see, space doesn't exist for the booster. The booster exists to get the rocket ship into space. And so, yes, God uses families and works through families and around them and in spite of them. And they are important in the way that he works. But they are important insofar as they get people into, and he uses them to get them into, the community that they're called the followers of Christ. And that means that we raise our kids up to ship them out. And that if they decide because of loyalty to Jesus that they have to move away or prioritize other things than a relationship with us because they're prioritizing the call and mission of Jesus, that's okay. That's part of it. It has radical implications for those who grow up in Christian families, it also has radical implications for those who come from non-Christian families. When I was in Cambridge, I got to know this gal and hear her story. She was from Iran. And I asked her, how did you become a Christian? And she said, well, I asked God to reveal himself to me and I started having these dreams. And Jesus appeared to me in a dream. And I became a Christian. And my family disowned me. And I escaped the country, and now I'm here. The church that she found was her family, her only family. And what Jesus is saying here is good news for people like that. It's good news for people without families, like those who have to bear the cross of singleness or widowhood, or same-sex attraction. This is good news because it says that they have a family to to whom they can belong. Uh, This has radical implications for even those of us who feel like we distance ourselves from our families. We say, well, I don't feel that influenced by my family. I don't feel like I really belong there. A lot of people feel that. They grow up in a household and they don't feel known, they don't feel loved, they don't feel like they belong. But here's the thing. You find some group that you belong to. You're going to find someone that you belong to and that you feel like those are my people. It could be surfers, it could be CrossFit, it could be, you know, a political organization, it could be your fraternity, 
It could be a runner's club. It could be so many things. But here's the thing. The family trumped all in Jesus' day. And so if Jesus is saying that the community of the followers of Christ are more important in his day than the family, then it trumps every other community in our day as well. So, this is, uh, this is huge. Tom Wright again says, how easy it is for us to slide back again into a sense of belonging, of group identity that comes from something other than loyalty to Jesus. We substitute long-standing friendship, membership in the same group or tribe or family or club or party or social class or whatever it may be. And we do. I mean, my tendency is to look at other Christians, some other Christians, and say, yeah, I don't really identify with them. And there are other people, maybe Christians, maybe not, that I say, yeah, I identify with them. But the reasons I say I identify with them is not because they're followers of Jesus. It's because we like the same music or we like the same food or we're into the same cultural expressions or have the same political outlooks or something like that. The same hobbies. Jesus is saying that can't be. Your group identity needs to be fundamentally shaped by the community of the followers of Jesus Christ. How? How would that shape? identities. Well, I want to talk about three ways closing this morning. First, the community of Jesus, I want you to note, is a called community. Verses 13 and 14, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he calls people to himself. Now, why is Jesus going up on a mountain and calling people to himself, uh, especially appointing 12? Well, anyone who had have seen this act, they would have... Um, it would have conjured up in their mind's eye a very important moment in the history of Israel. The founding of the nation where Moses led the people of Israel to Mount Sinai and there were 12 tribes that were constituted as God's people there. See, what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is saying, I am reconstituting Israel around myself to be the people of God. And then what happened to Israel there? God revealed himself, and especially through his law. And here we have a revelation that happens. Note that it says in verse, that he appointed 12 so that they might be with him, in verses 13 and 14. Now why is Jesus calling especially 12 to be with him? Well, you know, ancients, they weren't naive. We tend to think that ancients weren't naive. Ancients weren't naive. They actually wanted to know about the credibility of something if they heard something. They didn't believe anything. They were not gullible. And what mattered most to them when they were investigating something were eyewitnesses. If they wanted to know if something was true or not, they wanted to know, make sure that they talked to the eyewitnesses. And Jesus calls 12 people to be with him. Night and day, everywhere he went, through all his ministry, eating, breathing, sleeping, 
so that they might be with him, so that they might be credible witnesses. You see, what Jesus is doing is establishing eyewitnesses. That's why he names these 12, even though some of them don't ever appear again in the gospel, really, as far as their names go. They aren't of significance, except for the fact that anybody who was reading the gospel could have gone and asked them and interrogated them, did this really happen? Was this really true? See, Jesus is calling to himself 12 eyewitnesses who would then steward the ministry and the message of Jesus. So here's what that, this means. Some of you are here, and you're not a Christian. You're investigating Christianity. You think that Jesus is interesting. You're not sure about Christians, but you think Jesus is interesting. You think he's a fascinating guy. He's been so influential in the course of history, and you're interested in his ministry and his message. Let me tell you the place that you need to go if you really want to understand who Jesus is and what he did. You need to go right here. This is the eyewitness account. This is the authoritative eyewitness account of his ministry and his message. And if you haven't read the Bible, then you're not really investigating. You need to investigate. And you need to know that actually there are eyewitnesses throughout this that confirm this, that people could go and talk to. You need to read the eyewitness accounts, but you don't need to read them on their own. You can't do that on your own. You have to do it in community. Because to understand the apostolic documents, you have to, I would suggest, embed yourself in the apostolic community and the community that houses these documents and holds these documents. One of the most important kind of developments over the 20th century is in the area of, that's called the sociology of knowledge. And there are various twists and turns in this, but the basic thing is that what these scholars have shown is the in, inescapable and inevitable role that social structures play and communities play uh, in our apprehension of the world and our comprehension of the world and the way we understand the world. That the communities that we inhabit play a fundamental role in shaping how, the way that we think about the world. Now, uh, let me give you an example. Um, if I were to ask you, and this like goes deep, deep down into like language, even the way language works. So if I were to ask you, um, can someone tell me how to get to the nearest 7-Eleven? How would you describe it? You would say, well, you need to, you need to walk um, forward out the front door, and then you go to the left, and you turn to the left, and then when you turn to the left, you get to State Street, and then you turn to the right, and once you turn to the right, you walk straight ahead. You walk straight ahead until you get to Mission, and then you're going to look to the right, and you look to the right, and there's a 7-Eleven there, right? Now, here's the interesting thing about that. We don't even think about it. The whole thing assumes that you are the center point, Right and left change based on who you are. Front and back change based on where you stand. You are the center of the universe there. Did you know that in some cultures, they never describe direction that way? They actually use north, south, east, and west, which are constant. And so they would never describe the way directions work based on where I stand. See, we have a individualist-centered understanding of the universe. Part of that is due to the language that we inhabit, Right? So language and the communities that we inhabit and the culture we inhabit affects the way that we view the world. And that's also true about Christianity. 
Uh, Peter Berger was a eminent sociologist who worked at the University of Boston, he, Boston University. He died last Tuesday. But Berger brought this to light where he, he noted how in order to understand and for the Christian message to make sense, for it to seem plausible, you have to actually inhabit the Christian community. He said it like this, The reality of the Christian world depends upon the presence of social structures within which this reality is taken for granted, and within which successive generations of individuals are socialized in such a way that this world will be real to them. When this plausibility structure loses its intactness, or continuity, the Christian world begins to totter, and its reality ceases to impose itself as self-evident truth. Now, what is he saying? He's saying that once, you, once the Christian community dissipates, your understanding or your ability to understand the world that, the Christian, uh, that Christian claims to be reality, the Christian understanding of reality, it doesn't make as much sense. It's harder to make sense. Let me break it down like this. I believe with all my heart that the Christian claims about reality is true truth and is reality. I also believe with all my heart that that's not going to make much sense outside of the Christian community. Uh, so let me apply this. Some of you are here and you're kind of on the fringe of this community. You come in on a Sunday, you listen, you leave, you're kind of interested. Maybe you used to be on the center and now you're fading away to the periphery. The community that you really inhabit and identify with is somewhere else. And you're kind of on the borders here. And you have questions, valid questions, questions about Christian ethics, questions about suffering. As long as you stay on the fringe and the periphery, the answers, the more and more you get there, the more and more the answers Christians give, a Christian account of reality, of ethics, of suffering, won't make much sense. Because you'll start to lose a sense of a world in which there's a triune God who created everything and created it good. That because of sin and the entering of sin into that world, uh, that that ruined everything. But that God has not given up in his world, but he has entered in in Jesus Christ. And it required his suffering and death to bring a new world and new life. And that he's coming again to remake the world. That will not make sense the further you are on the periphery. Let me just do the opposite. I hear people talk in Santa Barbara and I'm listening to them, and they start talking about, for instance, um, your formless body. That sounds totally implausible to me. I'm like, what are you talking about, my formless body? And I'm like, I'm not talking about your real body. I'm talking about your formless body. But they think that makes all the sense in the world, your energy body, your formless body, because they inhabit a community that's very influenced by Eastern thought. And so that just, they take that as red. Of course you have a formless body. Right? So the communities in which we inhabit, they, they actually shape us. And this is the called community, and we are to steward the revelation of God by providing social structures by which people can understand the revelation of God 
and by maintaining fidelity to the apostolic witness. That's who we are. So once we start focusing on the Bible, we have lost it. We have lost it. This is a called community first. Second, this community is a sent community. Notice that verses 13, uh, 14 and 15 says that he appointed 12 whom he made apostles so that, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Jesus calls them in to be with him that he might send them out to extend his ministry and message. And notice what they're called to do, to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. In other words, they're called to do the very things that Jesus has been doing throughout this letter. They're called to extend the ministry and message of Jesus. Now, there are certain respects in which the apostolic ministry, what they're called to do, is unrepeatable. You cannot generate an authoritative eyewitness account of Jesus' ministry and message. You can't. You weren't there. You shouldn't. You're not authorized to. You're authorized to steward it, to maintain it, to proclaim it. But there are other respects in which we absolutely extend as the apostolic community, the community founded by the apostles. We absolutely extend the ministry and message of Jesus in the same ways that they did. That we are to be a sent community or a missionary community. The word Missio, uh, the word missionary just comes from the Latin missio, to send. And you are sent. If you are a Christian, you were sent. You were sent into this world. You were sent into Santa Barbara. Jesus called you to himself to send you out. And you were sent here whether you, you may think your parents brought you here. You may think school or work brought you here. You may think you were just born here. But let me tell you, you were sent to Santa Barbara. And our worship service actually reminds us of that every week. Because every week we are called into Jesus that we might be sent out by him to this world. That's who we are. We are missionaries. Did you know that? Do you think of yourself as a missionary? Because that is who you are. See, the church does not exist for itself just like the apostles did not exist for themselves. They were called in to be sent out. And here's what this means. See, the doctrine of election, that we are elected or chosen by God, which we see in this text, Jesus chooses 12 and appoints them, that it always flows downstream towards mission. That we are blessed to bless, that we are called to call, that we are elected for the sake of the world, not our own sake, but for the sake of the world. And so that's why as a church... We need to be continually on mission. We need to be engaging the society and seeking its flourishing. That's why we do First Thursday. That's why we do Serve Santa Barbara. That's why we welcome unbelievers and we don't think, assume that everyone here believes what we believe. Because we need to be a people who are constantly sent out and even sent here and even see our worship services. We are sent here from heaven to engage people. And to proclaim the truth of the gospel. And that's why we proclaim the gospel. Because it is the life transformative power of God for salvation. And so we do it. We are a sent community. Finally, though, we are a desired community. 
Why did Jesus call these? Well, verse 13 tells us, He called to him those whom he desired. That means that Jesus didn't just call the disciples on the mountain that day to use them, to utilize them. He didn't just call them to be with him to utilize them as witnesses. He called them to himself because he enjoyed them. Because he desired them. See, some of us... We believe God loves us. And what we mean by that is that he takes pity on us. But we're not real sure that he likes us. That he desires us. That he would want to be with us. Others of us, we're pretty sure that God wants to use us. And that's all we feel like. That God has called us that we might work for him. But what this tells us is that Jesus relates to you not just as a sinner whom he saves, not just a worker whom he sends, but before all that, you were the beloved whom he desires, whom he delights in, whom he sings over. You say, well, Kyle... That was them. That was the 12. That's not me. You don't know me. And that was the apostles. You're right, it was the apostles. Let's think about the apostles for a second, the people that Jesus would want to be at. Well, first there's Peter listed. You know the one who denied Jesus three times, the rockhead? And then after that, there's John, he mentions, who is jockeying for power and envious of the other disciples just after this. Oh, and at the bottom, you know, there's Thomas, who said, I won't believe Jesus unless I can put my fingers in, his, in, the, in the wounds. Oh, and, and at the end, there's this other guy. You might remember him. His name is Judas Iscariot. And Jesus even desired to be with him. Jesus even desired to be with him. And he desires to be with you and me as well. Not because of anything in us. Because of everything in him. Luther said that God loves sinners not because they are lovely. But sinners are are lovable. But sinners are lovable because God loves them. And that's exactly what verse 14 is saying. The word he appointed disciples actually means that he appointed the apostles. The word there is actually quite literally the word create. He created them. He created them anew. In other words, Jesus loves these disciples not because they have so much potential. They have so much potential because Jesus loves them. And because the word that he speaks over their lives, he names them. Notice he gives them nicknames. He renames them. And to name someone is not only to exercise authority over them, but it's all about identity. And so he calls, P- he calls Simon Peter, which means rock or rocky. You say, well, yeah, that's because he was, his confession was the foundation of the church. And he's the, he's the lead apostle and he's the one who's always speaking. Yes, he is. 
he's also kind of rock-headed. He's kind of thick-skulled. He's always rushing into things and always speaking his mind. So which is it? But Jesus, he, he sees him, he knows him, and he changes him by naming him. Jesus names them, and he names you and me as well. And that changes us. You know, like it's, uh, just to tell my own story just a little bit, it, it's, a, it's really amazing to think that before, some of you know this, before I was 18, I had not read a book in my whole life. I had never read a book, literally. But then grace came, and God called me, and he changed me. I wanted different things in life, and he called me, and he changed me. He didn't make me perfect by any means, but he made me different. He made me different, and he wanted to be with me. And it's his word, his call. That has the power because it's the same call that said, let light shine out of darkness, and there was light. And he points them to be apostles, and they are apostles. Not because of any hidden potential within them but because of the capacity of his word to speak over their lives and to transform things. I've told this illustration before, but there's a, there's a documentary called Muscle Shoals, and it's about a band uh, in, in a studio, recording studio in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, where all these hits were recorded. And there is a rhythm section called The Swampers in there, and there's this one part where Jerry Rexler, who was the um, head producer at Atlantic Records, comes and he looks at the drummer, Roger Hawkins, and he says, you're a great drummer. And Roger Hawkins recalls, from then on, I became a great drummer. He said, I wasn't that good a drummer, but he said, you're a great drummer. And from then on, I became a great drummer. That is the dynamic. Jesus says, you are called. You are You are sent. You are beloved, and you are, and you are. And this has to be the foundation of mission. Look at the dynamic in verses 14 and 15. And he appointed 12 so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority. He appointed 12 so that they might be with him, and then he sends them out to preach. He doesn't send them first and then want to be with him. See, most of the time I think, well, if I do enough for Jesus, then he'll desire me. That's not how it works. He desires you, and you spend time with him, and you spend time basking in his love and his grace and his song over your life, and then you're sent out. You're sent out into the world dancing, dancing in joy because you know how loved you are, and you want the rest of the world to experience that. That's got to be the dynamic. We are desired before we are sent, but we are sent because we are called. 